0: to lower this. (laughs) Good evening. I'm really glad to be here. Congratulations, you've made it to number five. I'll try to be reasonably brief. I'm going to start with a story. So when I was nine years old, my family took a trip. Uh, We went from Idaho, where we lived, and we drove to Arizona, which is where my grandparents were living. They were spending the winter there. And we spent about a week there, and then we decided it was time to come home. So we piled, the nine of us, into our station wagon. It was about 6 or 7 o'clock in the evening, just after dinner, and we began the 12-hour drive back to where we lived. My older brother Tyler was driving, and he was 17. He drove through the night, and around 6 o'clock in the morning, he fell asleep. The car was going about 60, 65 miles an hour when it drifted into the other lane, and then it left the highway. We smashed through one telephone pole, then a second telephone pole. And we only stopped when we hit something that was big enough to stop us, which in this case was a row crop tractor. And I'm gonna read a bit of description of the accident. I awoke when the car hit the first utility pole. I'd been asleep on the floor under my sister's feet, a blanket over my head. I'd tried to sit up, but the car was shaking, lunging. It felt like it was coming apart and Audrey fell on top of me. I couldn't see what was happening, but I could feel and hear it. Another loud thud, a lurch, my mother screaming, Tyler, from the front seat, and a final violent jolt before everything stopped and silence set in. Several seconds passed in which nothing happened. Then I heard Audrey's voice. She was calling our names one by one, and she said, everyone's here except Tara. I tried to shout, but my face was wedged under the seat, my cheek pressed to the floor. I struggled under Audrey's weight as she shouted my name. Finally, I I arched my back and pushed her off, then stuck my head out of the blanket and said, here. I looked around. Tyler had twisted his upper body so that he was practically climbing into the back seat, his eyes bulging as he took in every cut, every bruise, every pair of wide eyes. I could see his face, but it didn't look like his face. Blood gushed from his mouth and down his shirt. I closed my eyes trying to forget the twisted angles of his blood-stained teeth. When I opened them again, it was to check everyone else. There was a glare on the windshield from the morning sun. I saw crisscrossing patterns of fissures and cracks. The sight was familiar. I'd seen hundreds of shattered shattered windshields in the junkyard, each one unique, with its particular spray of gossamer extruding from the point of impact, a chronicle of the collision. The cracks on our windshield told their own story. Their epicenter was a small ring with fissures circling outward. The ring was directly in front of the passenger seat. You okay, Dad pleaded. Can you hear me? Mother was in the passenger seat. Her body faced away from the window. I could see her face, but there was something, excuse me, I couldn't see her face, but there was something terrifying in the way she slumped against her seat. Dad lifted Mother from the station wagon and I saw her face her eyes hidden under dark circles the size of plums, the swelling distorting her soft features, stretching some, compressing others. I don't know how we got home or when, but I remember that the mountain face glowed orange in the morning light. Mother was laid on the sofa. She mumbled that the light hurt her eyes. We closed the blinds. She wanted to be in the basement where there were no windows, so Dad carried her downstairs, and I didn't see her for several hours. Not until that evening, when I used a dull flashlight to bring her dinner. When I saw her, I didn't know her. Both eyes were a deep purple, so deep they looked black, and so swollen I couldn't tell whether they were open or closed. She called me Audrey, even after I corrected her. Thank you, Audrey. But just dark and quiet, that's fine. Dark, quiet, thank you. Come check on me again, Audrey, in a little while. Mother didn't come out of the basement for a week. Every day, the swelling worsened, the black bruises turned blacker. Every night, I was sure her face was as marked as it was possible for a face to be. But every morning, it was somehow darker, more tumid. After a week, when the sun went down, we turned off the lights, and Mother came upstairs. She looked as if she had two objects strapped to her forehead, large as apples black as olives. There was never any more talk of a hospital. The moment for such a decision had passed, and to return to it would be return to all the fury and fear of the accident itself. Dad said doctors couldn't do anything for her anyhow. She was in God's hands. So that story, again, I was nine, probably seems odd to some of you, Uh, but it did not seem odd to me at the time. It never really occurred to me when my mother was injured that way that we would take her to the doctor. And the reason it didn't occur to me is because my father had taught us that doctors had been corrupted, that they were in some way dangerous because they had been corrupted by something like the Illuminati. Sometimes he called it the Illuminati, sometimes it was the New World Order. And so it it would never have occurred to us, to any of us, I think, to take my mother to the hospital. My dad was something of a charismatic radical, and what that meant was he was opposed to a lot of the institutions that most people take for granted. Doctors and hospitals was, was just one. He was also opposed to public education, which is why I never set foot in a classroom. And he was also opposed to almost anything having to do with the government, which is why I didn't have a birth certificate until I was nine. And considering I didn't go to school and had never been to a hospital, really what that meant was, according to the state, I didn't exist. And so I'd never been in a classroom. My older brother, who was the one who was driving the car, Tyler, about a year after the accident, he had been for years studying on his own. He'd been teaching himself. There wasn't a lot of formal education taking place in my family. But he was able, somehow, by some miracle, (laughs) to teach himself trigonometry and then to teach himself algebra and then to teach himself calculus. And he went away to college and then he came back and he told me that I should also go away to college. And I also tried to teach myself trigonometry and calculus and algebra, however, I did not do it as well as he did. I think I can just be honest with you, not nearly so well. But I did get into a university, and when I was 17, I set foot in a classroom for the first time. And I began to study, and I learned about history, important historical events I'd never heard of. I raised my hand in one of my first lectures and asked what the Holocaust was, because I had never heard of it. And I began to study psychology, which gave me a new way of understanding my father and my childhood and maybe why he was so afraid of some of the things he was afraid of. And then I began to study philosophy and feminism, and that gave me new ways of understanding myself. And what I didn't know at the time was I was starting out on this path, this path of education that would take me to some of the best universities in the world. But that path would also take me away from my family. And the reason that would happen is because, for me, what an education would mean is it would mean developing something like an independence of mind. When I was a child, I'd been isolated. The views that I had access to were my father's views, the version of history that I had access to, the version of the past, anything about the present. His ideas were essentially my ideas. And what I developed as I studied, as I learned about things like the Holocaust, I developed the ability to keep hold of my own reality and my own ideas that were different from my father's ideas. So much so that by my senior year, when my dad visited me, the, the first and only time he visited me when I was at college, and he delivered a lecture to me that was essentially an extended quotation of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, I knew what he was saying, and he didn't. I knew the history of that text, and I knew that it had been disproven as a forgery in the 1920s, but that that hadn't stopped Adolf Hitler from quoting it in Mein Kampf. And I also knew that my father would have been appalled to be quoting Adolf Hitler, Uh, And it was probably the first time in my life that my father said something, and I felt like I knew what he was saying, and he he did not know what he was saying. And it was a real reversal of our relationship, the parent-child relationship, where now I was the parent, and I understood something that he didn't. And eventually this would, this would lead to a schism between me and my family, this independence of mine, because I was living in a family that was infected with violence. I had an older brother who for many years had been violent towards me and violent towards other people. And in my family, as in I think a lot of families, that had been normalized. It had been justified. It had been something that reality around those events was always distorted. You were always convinced after that it hadn't happened that way or that it had been a different thing or maybe even that it hadn't happened at all. And that's where this independence of mind would become a bit of an issue because it became harder and harder for me to be convinced that things hadn't happened when I knew that they had. So I get asked quite a bit why I decided to tell this story, the whole story, not just those stories. Um, Why do I tell the story of education? Why do I tell the story about estrangement from half of my family? And one of the reasons I do is because when I was going through the process of losing my own family, and it is a process, it didn't happen overnight, um, I became very sensitive to the stories that that we have. I became really sensitive to the stories I was exposed to in film or in novels or even in advertising. And it seemed to me that stories were very important because they... What they did, really, is they told us how we were supposed to feel. When we were supposed to be proud, when we were supposed to be ashamed. And I was going through this process. I was losing my family, and I didn't know how I was supposed to feel about that. I didn't know how I was supposed to believe that I was a good person when my parents didn't, because when I had confronted them about my brother's violence, they had decided that I was lying, and they had taken it to such an extreme that they had begun telling people I was possessed. And I... I didn't have a story for how I was supposed to feel about myself when my family felt like that about me. And so I I wanted to write a story like that, and I wanted to write a story that was about family loyalty. I felt like we had stories about family loyalty, but I didn't know if we had stories about what to do when loyalty to your family was somehow in conflict with loyalty to yourself. And I felt like we had stories about forgiveness, but I wasn't sure that we had so many stories that didn't conflate forgiveness with reconciliation or didn't treat reconciliation as the highest form of forgiveness. And in my life, I didn't know if I would be able to reconcile with my family or not. But I needed to believe that I could forgive them regardless of that. Another question I get asked is why I titled the book Educated. And that took me a long time to come up with that title. It's one word. It sounds like it should have been a quick process, but it wasn't. Um, and ultimately, it took me a while to realize that the story of my family and the story of my education were the same story because the story of my education was a story of change, and it was a story it was specifically of, of a change that a person went through. that were such radical changes to the self that she no, no, no longer belonged where she had belonged at the beginning, and that the questions in the book were about change, and they were about all the different versions of a person that can exist in the space of a life. And they were questions about whether your first self is your only true self, or whether you're allowed to change. And the questions were about what happens, or the struggle that ensues, when the people who are close to you won't allow you to change, or can't accept any other version of you. So another reason I chose that title, was because I wanted to offer a story about education that was not just about education in the institutional form, as in a school. I think sometimes when we think about education, we think about classrooms and exams and homework sheets, and, you know, a school is not an education. A school is an instrument of education, and I wanted to write a story that could separate those two things or could be about education not as a way of getting certificates or of being able to make a living. The way I had experienced education, it wasn't necessarily about making a living, that's maybe part of it. It was more about making a person and I wanted to write a story that was about that process and I wanted to title it Educated in particular because I think educated has become so heavily associated, the word has become so heavily associated with the institution that it's almost synonymous for some people, to be educated is to mean means to some people to be institutionalized, and it it ought not mean that, I think. So I'm going to close with a passage that is about education in the negative, um, which is to say that it's about ignorance. And it's about the ways that sometimes ignorance allows other people to define us, and in defining us, maybe even to obscure us from ourselves. And to understand this passage, really the only thing you need to know is My older brother had a nickname for me when I was a teenager. It wasn't a very nice nickname, and yet I had come to identify with it and to really take it uh, into who I thought I was. I had always scoffed at the word whore. It sounded guttural and outmoded, even to me. But even though I silently mocked Sean for using it, I had come to identify with it, that it was old-fashioned, only strengthened the association because it meant I usually only heard the word in connection with myself. Once, when I was 15, after I'd started wearing mascara and lip gloss, Sean had told Dad that he'd heard rumors about me in town, that I had a reputation. Immediately, Dad thought I was pregnant. He should never have allowed those plays in town, he screamed at Mother. Mother said I was trustworthy, modest. Sean said no teenage girl was trustworthy, and that in his experience, those who seemed pious were sometimes the worst of all. I sat on my bed, knees pressed to my chest, and listened to them shout. Was I pregnant? I wasn't sure. I considered every interaction I'd had with a boy, every glance, every touch. I walked to the mirror and raised my shirt, then ran my fingers across my abdomen, examining it inch by inch, and thought to myself, maybe. I had never kissed a boy. I had witnessed birth, but I had been given none of the facts of conception. While my father and brother shouted, ignorance kept me silent. I couldn't defend myself because I didn't understand the accusation. Days later, when it was confirmed that I was not pregnant, I evolved a new understanding of the word whore, one that was less about actions and more about essence. It was not that I had done something wrong so much as that I existed in the wrong way. There was something impure in the fact of my being. It's strange how you give the people you love so much power over you, I had written in my journal. But Sean had more power over me than I could possibly have imagined. He had defined me to myself, and there's no greater power than that. Thank you.